Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at anchor.fm slash allingospel or visit the allingospel.com website. All right, we'll be in Numbers 21 tonight. And I'll say, as before we even get going, like this has been a really fun chapter this week and staying on it and really appropriate for a lot of things. Um, and I hope as you go through it, first of all, like frame this a little bit. For most of the book of Numbers, there's been this image or an easy to see image of the Christian walk or the Christian journey from people that are struggling to accept the authority of God in their life and they're grumbling and complaining about things to just this journey through the wilderness that they take and they figure it out. So chapters one through nine were getting ready to move and they had to take care of some things. Uh, and chapters 10 through 14, Israel spend most of its time complaining instead of praising God. Something that we do oftentimes in life. In fact, they spending four or five chapters on that seemed extremely appropriate because that seems to be what gets Christians caught up a lot is they can be complainers. And then you get chapter 15, God reminds them, look, here's the book of Leviticus. This is how I wanted worship to happen. This is the relationship I intended to have with you. And then you, um, then you get these kind of wonderful chapters where the next generation comes along and they get what the first generation didn't, right? Because the last generation screwed up at Horma. They wanted to send in spies. The spies came back and said, scary. And then they said, oh, and they all ran away. And that was a bad thing. So here we get to Numbers 21. And we are regathering the people of, of Israel from all over the land. They've come together and they're going to move into the land. At least that's the idea. But Numbers 21 uh, verse 1 is the king of Arad. The Canaanite who dwelt in the south heard that Israel was coming on the road to Atharim, which means of the spies. It was named that way probably because that's where the spies came and went. Then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. So Israel made a vow to the Lord and said, if you will indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord listened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites and they utterly destroyed them in their cities. So the name of that place was called Hormah. So this is a new generation of Israelites. Really the only one that we're aware of that's still left is Moses. The rest of them have died off in the wilderness. They've spent 40 years doing that. And it's the first time in the book of Numbers that the people of Israel actually appeal to God. So that's good. They appeal to destroy their enemies, which maybe isn't as good. But we have to see this as progress in the larger book of Numbers. They're not initially complaining. It's an immature request. God, you give me this and I'll do this. And I think we've all done that. So let's not make fun of the Israelites yet. But it's one of those things that new, new believers do. They often kind of try to make deals with God, like God can be dealt with in that kind of way. What's amazing is that God actually honors it. And he's like, okay, I appreciate that you're coming to me for what you want, instead of complaining to Moses or doing other things. They choose not to take the cities, but to loot and destroy the cities, which is a kind of tithe almost. Like they're not conquering this land and owning it. They're conquering this land and giving it to God, putting it back to its natural state. 
that's an extremely expensive gift, but it basically says the Israelites at this point aren't fighting for themselves. However, you also have something that people struggle with. The Israelites went to war and killed people. And there's no mention of if Israelites died in this, just that they won and that they devastated and destroyed those cities. Also pay attention, because I think this is important for the people of God. When they fought, it wasn't that the Israelites initiated this. In verse 1, it's Arid that initiates the fight. The Israelites are just trying to walk around and find their way into the promised land, which is what we do every day. We walk around and we try to find our way with God. Right? We don't pick fights with people. We don't try to pick fights with people. In fact, they've, off, they've even asked to go through the territory without a fight. But that's not going to happen. Sometimes the world doesn't let that happen. The word horma is devotion. Uh, this is the same place where they kind of ran up the hill and they lost that battle before. This time they fight and win the battle. So it must be that their size that they were worried about in earlier chapters isn't that big of a deal anymore. Because when God's on your side, it doesn't. Verse 4, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the sea, to go around the land of Edom. Remember in chapter 20, Edom rejected passage. They couldn't go through that land. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Again, this is progress because they used to speak against Moses and not admit that they were speaking against God. At least now they're complaining to God, which is a great kind of principle uh, in that God's big enough for those kinds of complaints. The complaint is, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. They've been eating the same bread for 38 years, <laughs> right? And at that point, that might be something that gets old after a while. Let's give them credit. They bring their complaints to God. Um, think of this hike around Edom, and we should know this. It's an incredibly long hike, and it's like an amazing race kind of hike. It would be arid, dry, horrible, barren territory. That kid likes Bible study. And it's not surprising they complain in that this is a really, they're actually doing something hard and they start to complain about it. Compare this to before where they weren't doing anything hard and they complained. But now they're doing something hard. Again, new believers sometimes take things on. They get early victories, a big epic victory versus a rad. And then you're back in the wilderness and it's hardship again. And that can be something that we complain about. So there's no roots for them. They have this big victory and then they have a dry spell and they go back to complaining. The complaint is almost identical to what we saw them do before. God's leading them in a direction and if you look at the direction on a map, they're actually going away from the promised land. So to get around Edom, they're actually going the wrong way. And sometimes God takes us in a direction that doesn't look like it's where we want to be, but it's exactly where God wants us to go. And in that portion they're there so they blame Moses and they blame God and they uh, do that this is a tough passage in the context of numbers I think we start to get understanding we've seen Israel be cold towards God ignoring God they built a golden calf against God back in Exodus they've done a lot of things at this point they're angry at God and that's kind of an important thing and I and I want to I want to defend Israel just a little bit and I think some you could read this passage and really just pick on Israel a little bit too. But they're actually trying to do hard things. And they're actually risking big. And I think that's kind of a good thing, right? And in that, they get a big victory, but in that, they also get these dry times where they've tried and they're trying to do things and that's tough and they complain. I think sometimes God likes and he answers their prayer. We should note that too. God actually honors this process. So complaining to God is not a bad thing. And he honors it. 
I think God wants his people to either be hot or cold. Either you're on or you're off. Don't go in between. And I was thinking of Revelation 3.15. I know your works that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. God has and Jesus had a number of times when he talked about this kind of Christian that's halfway in between. Not really committed, not really all in. And that's a frustration for God because he wants his people to be alive. And my argument for the beginning of this chapter is at least they're alive. And he's dealing with lively people, even though they're immature and they're not doing it, they're still recognizing that God's role is in it. And even though they're upset about the bread that God made and they're not really thankful about it, they insult his cooking. I mean, that's such a horrible thing. Um, They accuse him of murder. I mean, if you think of this complaint they made, they're accusing God of trying to kill them. So these are two horrible things. And their soul loathes the worthless bread. It's the kind of complaint that has to do with their soul loathing it. It's not that it physically tastes bad. It's that they have this issue with how God's providing for their life, that it's the same thing day after day after day. And instead of being at peace and saying, thank you for the same thing every day, Lord, they want something different. So the miracle bread then becomes worthless, not because it doesn't nourish them, but because their souls are against it at this point. They want more. He calls it worthless bread. The word word worthless there is kelokal. It means contemptible and light without substance. It's something that's worthless. It has no value and it has no weight. It's the only time in the Bible the word gets used. So it's amazing how the enemy loathes what is godly, wonderful, virtuous, and noble, and even miraculous. And when people are not rooted in the gospel, they tend to hate things of God. Not just lukewarm or passable, but they hate it. And that's one of the things they're struggling with right now, is that their souls, not their stomachs, are having a spiritual battle. And they're in the middle of this struggle with God. So perhaps these people are not being lukewarm because God's not spitting them out. They're actually being hot. And that that's a place that God can work with people. So it's worse than all previous grumbling. But strangely enough, God actually has honored them and does some things with them. In Exodus 16:7 and Numbers 14:27, they're murmuring against God, but they say Moses. Now they murmur directly against God. So being angry at God is a loss of trust in God, but it's a victory of belief in God. I'll say that again because I thought this was a really cool idea. Being angry at God is a lack of trust in God, but it's an advancement of faith in God. At least you believe God's there and he's active in your life. And from that point, God can work with that. So being angry with God isn't the end of the world. So this direct direct anger, however, has to get dealt with by God. So instead of just spitting them out, he's going to discipline them and deal with them. So (laughs) because this anger at God is fired up or it's hot and direct conflict, God's going to give Israel the same thing. Israel holds them in contempt. They hate him. There's a spiritual battle with them. They resent him. And God responds with an absolute miracle, or at least that's how this reads. The claim is, verse 6, So the Lord sent fiery serpents among his people. I love how it says among, amongst the people there, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. So they give him a fiery complaint. He gives them fiery serpents. The word fiery is fiery red or fiery like a toxin. It could actually be flames. 
like little snakes that are on fire, but it could also be just that they were red snakes or that they had a toxin that kind of felt like you were getting burnt or something to that effect. The meaning would be the same either way in the Hebrew. Seraph is the word. It's the same root word that we get with seraphim, which means kind of angels of power. In Isaiah, Isaiah 6, the seraphim had six wings. These appear to be snakes because it says seraph snakes. Um, so they're snakes that may have some heavenly power to them. So they would actually be some manifestation of a spiritual realm. It's an extreme response to an extreme stance. And God matches their extremity with a really extreme situation. God wants his people in the promised land. And there needs to be no doubt about what's going on here and, and, and how that relationship should look. And again, the whole narrative of the Bible, this makes a lot of sense. Take this out of context. God's sending fiery snakes at his people, and it's a really weird kind of passage out of context. But in context, he's doing something. It says many died. Most people believe this is why the last of the older generation, whoever might have been left, is going away. And God's taking out everyone else in that last generation because he wants his people to be able to get there. It doesn't say that here. Um, and perhaps they, the younger people thought they were untouchable, but some of them die too. So it could be that he's just kind of giving a warning to his people. As many as I love, I rebuke and I chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. That's God's will in Revelation. It's his will here too. If he's going to chasten his people, it's because he wants repentance, right? He wants something to happen. So if there's no death, then there's no real serious consequence here. Um, the snakes would just be a nuisance. If they're going to do anything, they have to be killer snakes to get people to realize God's serious about this. So for this next part to make sense, there's another reason why they have to be killer snakes. In every chapter of Numbers so far, we've been able to look and see images of Jesus Christ. It's really important for this next passage that the snakes are actually equated with death that the bites of the fiery serpents actually lead to death is an important idea, which is why they say it at the end of verse 6, right? Because there's, there's a narrative being painted here. Verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he might take away the serpents from us. Okay, this is a strong sin. It has a strong consequence. And then we see a strong repentance. This is golden. Like, this is the kind of thing you want to stand up and cheer for the Israelites. This is an amazing moment. They repent without Moses having to tell them to. They turn because they see what God's doing. Because they see the consequences of sin is death. They repent from their ways and become a different kind of people. This is kind of cool. They recognize their own sin. That humility means everything. Chronicles Second Chronicles 7:14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and heal their land. What a cool image. So if the snakes aren't killers, the image doesn't work. Sorry, Israelites, they get to be the picture painting organization for all of history. So salvation here is going to lie in God. It's not going to be, they didn't come up with snake killing strategies. They didn't wear snake blocking uniforms. They didn't even improve their boots. They turned to God because that's what heals wounds. Everything else is kind of a thing. They didn't call animal control or Billy the exterminator. None of those things happened, right? Which would have been worldly answers to a very snake worldly question. But I don't know that what the Bible's saying here is that these were worldly snakes. 
They were fiery snakes. There's something different about these snakes where the people knew that this was a God issue, right? So Moses prayed for the people. As a response to the people, he's now shepherding and representing what they have to say. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole and so it was. If a serpent had been bitten, anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Okay, these couple verses, first of all, I'm guessing everybody's heard this story before, right? Yes? Okay. And everyone knows where this is going, yes? So I'm just going to celebrate that because this, this is one of those things that's kind of an image of Christ that most people teach about. It's also, I just want to point out, breaking the law. So this is a moment when in Exodus 20, verse 4, it says, You shall make no graven image. It should not be worshipped. But this image that they're told to make is being ordered by God. They're being told to make a graven image, which is against one of the Ten Commandments. The difference here is, I think, they're not supposed to worship the image. It's supposed to teach them faith in God. If you look at that image, then God will save you. And the real relationship is between the people and God. And there's this image of faith that comes through it. So later on, of course, we should know 2 Kings 18. Uh, King Hezekiah breaks this very serpent into pieces because the people do actually start to worship it. And they actually gave it a name. They call it Nehushtan. So they actually named the serpent and started worshiping it later, hundreds of years later. Um, so we should know that. But... Even this thing can become an idol. Uh, and this thing is actually a, a symbol. And, 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 it, and it says not to trust snakes. <laughs> and that's not the place to put your eyes. Trust in God who set it on a pole. Uh, it's a good place to remember the usage of serpents so far in the Bible. The first serpent we ran into was in Genesis 3, when he said, has God really said that to you? Is that what God really means for your life? He lies to Eve in Genesis 3, 2. He tells her, you won't surely die. So far, the snake has said, God doesn't really mean that, and you're not really going to die. In this scene, the snake is the one that bites them and kills them. And it's, I think it's important to see that, because so far in the Bible, the word serpent has been associated with the enemy. So the enemy curses, so in that, God curses all of humanity in Adam and Eve because of their interactions with the snake. Now there's fiery serpents everywhere biting people all over the place. And their bites are killing people. And they're doing the exact opposite that the serpent said they would do last time. There's also been a serpent with Aaron's rod before Pharaoh in Exodus 7. His rod turns into a serpent, another symbol of kind of judgment. But here with God's children, we see that this is a hinge point, just like the Pharaoh interaction and just like the Adam and Eve interaction. This is a massive hinge point in the Bible. And it's important to understand what's going on here. First, let's look at this. Look to the serpent, which is set on a pole. God gives them a choice to do this. They don't have to look up. They can continue to look down. Amazingly, there's a cool word study here. And it's not just an odd phrasing. That set on a pole is an odd phrasing in the King James. But sometimes we just read over those phrases because we're so used to them. But we wouldn't talk that way. We wouldn't say, take that thing and set it on a pole. That's an odd word, and it means in the English what it means. Bronze, of course, is a symbol of judgment. The serpent is going to be set on a pole because it's judged. Evil will be judged. To set is the word sum, which means to put or set upon something in English. It has a violent connotation. So this image gets used by the medical profession as these 
two little happy snakes that are writhing around the pole. That's not what the Bible says. They should be set upon the pole, like impaled on it or violently put on that pole. So the little happy medical image is not what this pole would have looked like. It would have in fact been set upon. And if you have an upright object like a pole and you set something on it, then you'd have a cross over the top of that pole. Or at best, you'd have a peace symbol as the snake would be pulled down over the pole and its floppy ends would hang to either side. But it would be set upon the pole uh, because God has ordained it to be there. So there's a connotation to this piercing or violent setting that would go on and then it would go horizontally across a vertical pole that was up there. So it's not wrapped, it's not writhing around, it's not little happy snakes on a pole like we see for the medical symbol. You all know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Uh, so it would make an image or a peace symbol of a cross or a peace symbol that would be up above the people. The pole is something that's lifted up. It's In the Hebrew, it means a signal or a banner or something that you uh, hold up as in battle. Um, so it's not just any old pole or just a stick. It's a stick with a symbol on it. So when it says set the serpent on the pole, there's supposed to be a symbol that they look at. And that's a, in fact what God actually tells them to do. He says... Whenever Satan has laid hold of you, or whenever you've been bit by Satan, you're supposed to turn away from it and look up to what God's given you as a symbol for your salvation. It gets even cooler. When you look at it, this is odd because they have to trust that it's going to work. You have to believe that God can save you with a look or a glance. That's an odd thing, and we struggle with that to do. Why would believing in Jesus save our souls? What an odd thing. Historical event, we can be convinced of it intellectually, and in our hearts, we have to actually choose to believe that that's going to be part of what shapes our life. This is amazing. Same principle here. Anyone who looks on it gets saved. Jesus talks about this event, and this is why we know it's such a hinge point. And Jesus said in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 14, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus just says it. This is the same thing. Satan gets lifted up here, and Jesus is going to get lifted up here and bear all the sins of the world, becoming the sin, and lifted up on a cross. And he asks us to look at that image. Sandwiched between that and the next verse I'm going to read is the living water at the well, the whitened harvest, the Gentiles getting saved, and the Roman guy getting healed. And then Jesus comes right back to this and says, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come to judgment, but has passed from death into life, just like bronze passes through the fire and becomes that image of justice. Jesus is the signal. He is the banner. He's the thing that gets lifted up. And he is bearing the best that Satan could dish out, a la death. And he actually took and died and accepted and took everything Satan could offer. Yet he still lives. So he was able to endure that death, which is pretty neat. So when we're bit, all we have to do is look at Jesus. And everybody gets bit by Satan at some point or another. We all have death waiting at our doorstep. That's the invitation that we have as humans on this earth, that we will die. It's guaranteed. Just like death and really good hamburgers at Bible study. It's guaranteed. So set your mind not on the things that are below, but the things that are above. And below is so stormy. And it's so writhing with violence and anger and hate. 
And if we can't see that in the news today, we're nuts or we're blind. Everything this on this earth is just a disaster. And it's just waiting to bite people. And when it bites, it hurts. And it's painful. But God asks us to look to him and not to the ground. I don't know about you, but when there's a snake slithering in front of me, my eyes don't go anywhere else. Who wants to take their eyes off the snake? It's, I think, even almost a physical impossibility to just not look at the snake while it's biting you. And I think that's the tough part that a lot of believers are struggling with right now in the United States of America. There's so much stuff going on around us that we have to look at because everybody demands that we look at it. And what we should be looking at is the cross and the salvation of Jesus Christ, no matter how bad it gets down here. And that's what these Israelites had to do. In, in fact, there had to be some Israelites that thought that Moses was nuts because the snakes are popping up all over the place. Johnny just died and you want me to look at the cross? Really? Because these snakes are real and people are actually dying from these snakes. Don't you see how important and relevant everything is in this world? But the worst the world can do is kill you. And that's not that bad for believers. It's not the end of things. So this is kind of this amazing moment. And the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region of the shadow of death, light has dawned. And this is the moment. They finally learn to obey God, right? They do it immature-like. They make deals with God. And then they start to complain again. So they backslide. And then we have this moment where death just takes them. And there's snakes everywhere. Fiery snakes. Snakes that want your attention. The little red snake is crawling around. It's hard to take your attention off that, but that's exactly what God asks his people to do. Take your eyes off that and put it on the cross. Put it on this pole with a snake impaled over it, right? We don't have to do anything. We just have to believe. Just trust God and the snakes will go away. It's absolutely, it's a great adventure novel kind of setting and scene is this lesson that we learn to take our eyes off the world and put it on God. And it's the most difficult thing we do as believers. But as soon as you do it, the snakes go away. And they're just not that important anymore. And you feel freedom and peace that passes understanding. Because the world doesn't get how you take your eyes off the snakes. They just don't get it. And the world may even parade themselves around as believers. But they don't understand people who just don't care to look at it anymore. I'm going to set my eyes on Jesus. That's my path, nothing else. I know I'm taking tons of time with this verse, but this is so cool. At this point, chronologically, the law has been given in Leviticus. The law is done at this point in the narrative, right? The law has done everything it can do. It's been written. It's been finished. It's on little scrolls that Joshua gets to carry around probably. The preparation for all of these chapters is done. The wilderness walk is over, and all they have to do is look to this pole, and be saved. Like that bypass, you get what just happened there? It bypasses the entire law of Moses. Just look at the cross and you'll be saved. Well, why did we have all of Leviticus? Because Leviticus is a lesson for all of human history of what God wants from us and the sacrifices that he sees as sweet. Romans 10, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the generation which is of the law, the man who does those things shall live by them, but the, righteous of, the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. The word is near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart, 
that is the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For you, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Snakes are down here. It's terrifying to look up, but when you do, you're saved. Mind blown. Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me and you will be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no one else. This principle goes to not just the Jewish people. It gets, it gets preached to the entire world. Colossians 3, 1 through 6. If then you were raised with Christ, lifted as though you were a pole, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God, and set your minds on things above, not on the things of the earth. Paul's got it memorized. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let the snakes bite if that's what they need to do. We're already dead. We've given our life to God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth. Put to death fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry, little red snakes, because these things, the wrath of God is coming and the sons of dis upon the sons of disobedience. Right after the harshest ju judgment God's given so far, we see the easiest redemption path that he's given so far. Isn't that neat? His judgment always matches his mercy. Here's the snakes. Here's the way out. Here's the law. Here's how you fulfill it. There's always this path, this choice that we get to make. One thing we can always continue to look at is how Jesus beat death. And that resurrection becomes so important. And this image of that idea, here's death all around and up goes a little bronze pole with a snake impaled on it. Look at it and you'll be saved. And boom, that actually happens. We don't have any more record of death. In fact, the next word is now in verse 10. Like apparently everybody who's left looked at the pole and believed that God would save them. So this new generation, they're pretty awesome. Maybe a couple of them died. Maybe it was the rest of the old people that died off. But there's Moses and all the kids. And they're ready to move forward. Now the children of Israel move on. So this next part is like the Muppets when they travel by map. That's how cool this is. If you believe in God and you are saved from death, the next part of the journey is pretty cool. So they're just going to play the music and now the children of Israel move on and camped in Oboth. And then they journeyed from Oboth to camped at Eberim in the wilderness, which is east of Moab, towards the sunrise. And from, they, and from there they moved and they camped in the valley of Zered. And from there they moved and camped on the other side of Arnon, which is the wilderness that extends from the border of the Amorites for the Arnon, the border of Moab between Moab and the Amorites. Boom, 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 boom. Things are happening. They've learned to not look at the world and all of a sudden, bam, everything starts to happen. Things open up. Doors, doors open wide. The enemy comes crashing down. The snakes are nowhere to be seen because they just don't have any power anymore. God let them go in the first place. He can trap them back up if he needs to. Right after that judgment, God starts to let them move around. It's interesting here, I think, in my humble opinion, there's no narrative of them, their reaction to the pole at all because it's totally individual and personal. There's nothing here where Moses talks about or writes about how they reacted to the bronze serpent. It's just now they're moving. 
and it's just assumed that the people that believed were ready to go. In the same way, I think as believers, we don't sit and look at our old life and what we used to be and beat ourselves up about it and carry that shame with us for the rest of our life. You just move on. The word now in verse 10, after that amazing image of Christ, is a really big word theologically. Now they're moving. It's just that easy. It amazes me, now that Steph and I are getting older, but not that much older, um, we know people that have been walking with the Lord for 20, 30 years and just nothing's going on in their life. And you think, well, have you really ever taken your eyes off this world and looked at the cross and followed it and moved when he said to move and stay when he says to stay and really try to live that out? Because that's when God works with people. Otherwise, God doesn't discipline people He doesn't that are lukewarm. Why bother with the lukewarm people? But if you're not getting bit by snakes and you're not looking at the cross, then you're, you're probably lukewarm. Something's wrong. So with Christians, we have these amazing tragedies and horrible things that the enemy throws at us. And then we have these amazing victories that go absolutely incredible. We go from snakes to the cross every single day. And it's the warfare that we fight. But when we figure that out and we just keep our eyes on the cross, wow. They take their eyes up. They're moving in unity. There's a camp. They're going. The children of Israel, they're called again. They're not the groaners and complainers of Israel. Uh, they're the children of Israel. Uh, the names of all these places are just kind of uh, geographical names. But the next set of names is kind of neat. Um, they're moving. They're camping. They're doing the will of God. It's like this beautiful training montage in an action movie. Right? It's when they're preparing for the bad guys to show up. Or the Rocky movie when they play Getting Stronger. You know, he drinks the eggs. Am I dating myself? You guys <laughs> haven't watched Rocky? Okay. Therefore it said, this is my one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I love these verses in the Bible. This is super cool. And for all of us academic types, therefore it is said, in the book of the wars of the Lord, Waheb and Supah, the brooks of Arnon, and the slopes of the brooks that reaches the dwelling of Ar, and lies on the border of Moab. Wait a second. There's books that God has in his library that aren't in the Bible? And the answer is yes. There are multiple occasions where there are references to books that are lost scrolls. Go ahead and write that adventure book for Indiana Jones. There are books that are out there that were written, that were traveling around with Israel, that get at, talked about in the Bible, but they're not in the Bible. So one question is, is that a mistake then? Does the Bible have missing books? No, the books that God wants in the Bible are in the Bible. That's what Paul says. It's complete and it's total. Um, but where we need things from those books, they're quoted in here. Just like when I write an academic paper, I quote authors that I want to take what they have, but I don't want to take everything. I just take the part I want. And that's what God's doing with the book of the wars of the... Lord, I just think that's so cool. It's even got a great title. So when we get to heaven, some of us will be found in the library reading through these kinds of things. And for reader people, come on, right? You got to beat me to the checkout because I don't know how many copies they'll have. I got some reader people in the room. So this is golden for readers. I think God puts these gems in here for different personality types. I know some people in here aren't the reader types, but for those of us that are, that's just like, I want heaven. I really want to read that book. So whatever I got to do to get there, I'm cool with that. And I know that's a totally selfish path to salvation, <laughs> but there's more books in heaven, more than we have on earth and really good ones, I'm sure. Um, so verse 16, 
And for the people that aren't reader types, maybe this is your verse. From there they went to beer. <laughs> now, I'm going to say this is a proper noun for a town name. So it is not in the English. It is not a beverage. Nor is this a verse to endorse the drinking of beer in large amounts. Beer actually means in the Hebrew, a well. So it does have to do with beverages. Um, but it's definitely a well that would, we would, it would have water in it. So, however, if you do take the passage with the beer piece, then these next verses are actually kind of funny. Um, which is the well where the Lord said to Moses, gather the people together and I will give them water. Thus, the, the Israel started to sing a song. So this is what people do when they get to beer and they have lots of it, is they start to sing a song, spring up a well, as all of you sing to it, the well the, le the leaders sank, dug by the nation's nobles, by the lawgiver with their staves. Now in the Hebrew, that rhymes. It's a, it's a song kind of thing. In the English, it doesn't rhyme at all. When people, God's people are faithfully following God and we start to beat the snakes, we have these victories and we get the Muppet travel montage. The next thing God's people do is they start to sing songs. It's a weird thing. And there aren't as many people singing songs in the world as there are in the Christian community. But we Christians, we like to sing songs. We sing them around a campfire. We sing them on a beach. We sing them at buildings as we gather together in churches. We sing them in our dorm rooms. We sing in the shower. We sing all the time. And part of singing is what God's done in our soul. And it comes out as this form of joy. And either worldly joy or Christian joy, singing is part of what comes out when we're being joyful. It's just amazing. Even people with bad voices. All you got to do is camp with somebody long enough before the singing starts to happen. And if they're joyful, they'll start to sing, even if they're horrible. And that's beautiful. What a cool thing that God's people have all these movements and they're just following the Lord and it's going good. And they don't care what direction they're going because this is one of the most zigzaggy paths in the world. They're just happy that they're with the Lord and they're happy that they're right with God. And they've got a pole they can look at. If anything bad happens, they just turn back to God. This is awesome. So... They have the fruit of faith. Songs start to appear. They're remembering God's gift. If you look carefully at the song, the spirit of living water is what's on their hearts. Kind of cool. They look to the cross and then they have the spirit of living water starting to make them sing songs. Their spirits change. There's a turning that's going on here. They're not complaining. They're singing. Do you see the hinge point of the Bible here? What's going on with Israel is miraculous. He's changing them which tells you why the snakes were such a big deal. Like they were disciplined. They were a form of shaping God's people in some way, shape, or form. John 7, verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture says, and out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's what's promised to us. You believe in God, out of your heart flows living water. I, I like to think John was reading verse 17 when he said that. This is what happens when you follow God. You start to sing songs that don't rhyme. And from the wilderness, they went to Matna. This is a gift of Jehovah, is what that word means. From Matna to Nahaliel, which is the torrents of God. And Nahaliel to Bamoth. And from Bamoth, which means, by the way, the heights. Uh, in other places in the Bible, Bamoth is called Bamoth Baal. Here, there's no Baal involved. <laughs> it's just Bamoth, the heights. So they go from the gift of Jehovah to the torrents of God to the heights in the valley that is in the country of Moab to the top of Pisgah, which looks down on the wasteland. Pisgah means cleft in the mountain. So 
again, the gifts, the heights, the torrents, the mountaintop. This is the journey of moving from water to mountains. The montage, the travel by map now comes to a close. This has been a good time for Israel. They're on their way. They know how to repent and all these gifts just started happening. And finally they reached the high places. Those high places where last time they were there, they got their butts kicked and they had to run away. They're not in that mode at all this time. They're singing songs on that mountain and the scary people are running away. So they go all over and they go like traveling to the ends of the earth. They're traveling all over the place and it suddenly sounds like the believers are moving all over the place. Listen to how similar this is to the people who looked to the cross. This is in the book of Acts where you get the early church moments. Acts 16.11 Therefore, and again, just listen to the similarities of the passage. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran straight on a course to Samothrace, and on the next day we came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of the part of Macedonia, a colony, and we were staying there for some days. The people of God got saved, and they started traveling by map. They're just going all over the place, talking about the Lord. Some people, when they get saved, their instant instinct is, I want to go tell people about the Lord. They want to go door to door, go to apartment buildings and knock on doors and just tell people about Christ because that's what happens when your spirit's alive. God's put that on your heart. They stop complaining. They stop trying to please the world. They stop looking at the snakes. They look to the banner. They sing some songs and they travel all over the place. You see the progression? This is kind of cool. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you, that you shall be a witness to me and in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. That's, that's what happens when God moves amongst his people. It happens all over the place. Edom would not let them pass. Now they arrive at the door of the Amorites. Verse 21. Let's see how this one goes. Then Israel sent messengers to Sahan, king of the Amorites, saying, let me pass through your land, and we will not turn aside into the fields or vineyards. We will not drink water from the wells. We will go by the king's highway until we have passed through your territory. But Sihon would not allow Israel to pass, pass through his territory. So the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Amorites are all cousins to Israel. They're all in the family tree. So we've seen them part off in Genesis, and now they're nations, and they're not being friendly to their cousins. Israel's singing their songs. They offer people peace. They joyfully ask if they can travel through the world without any interruptions and hazards. They joyfully go into the Costco just minding their own business. Okay, I got to tell you about a friend named Mike. <laughs> this last week, uh, he told me um, he was having problems at Costco because he was just going in to pick up some stuff for his job and he had everything. He'd gone through the cart. He got to the register and they wouldn't check him out at the register because he wasn't wearing a mask over his face. And he's looking around at the employees and they all got masks like down over their mouth, but not over their nose and everything else. So he just says, really? Can't, there's a big piece of plastic here. You can't just check me out. And they said, no, you can't pass through here. And I was like, oh, I'm just reading about this, Mike. He's just trying to get through this place. But because of all of their concerns about what's going on in the world, they won't let him pass. So he said, so to be clear, you would check me out if I had a piece of fabric over my face. That's what you want? That's what's important to you? And they said, yes, that's what's important. He goes, so I could get a white sheet and cut eye holes in it like Casper the Friendly Ghost and I could come back through here in a ghost outfit and you would check me out? And they said, yes, we would do that. And he said, okay, I'll be right back. He didn't want to cut up one of his sheets, but he did have a costume of a lion at home. So he grabbed the lion <laughs> helmet thing, went back to the store 
and walked through line and they were all cracking up and laughing. <laughs> he brought mirth to the moment, right? And he's, he's laughing because he's like, you realize there's a giant breathing hole in this mask, right? It's store policy, sir. That's what we got going. All right, whatever you got to do. And he's thinking he's going to get through the world peacefully, but it doesn't happen. As he's walking out the door, somebody takes it upon themselves to verbally assault him, swearing at him, all sorts of things. You blankety blank blank this and blankety blank. You're making a joke about blankety blank and blank 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 stuff. And he just said, dude, you need Jesus. <laughs> like, you got issues. Like, we got to live together. In some way, there's got to be peace. But your chaos can't just leave people alone when they're joyful and peaceful. And so there's these kind of moments, right? So the Amorites won't let them pass through their territory. It's amazing how Christians can sing songs, be joyful, be happy, say praise the Lord, pray with people, eat together, do all these cool things that really, why wouldn't you want that life of fellowship and joy and peace? But there are people in the world that just say, no, you can't do that. You can't sing. You can't assemble here. You can't have the peace that you want. There will be no joyful singing whatsoever. And I hate to say, I'm, and I don't, like, some people don't like when I get all political with this stuff, but that's, we're living in this world right now. You can't do those things. Why is that the thing that's such a problem? And it reminded me of somebody else who didn't like noise and he didn't like feasts. And then they do something I hate most of all. Every who down in Whoville, <laughs> the tall and the small, they'll stand close together. Oh, no mercy, no. With Christmas bells ringing, they'll stand hand in hand. And the who's will start singing. And they'll sing and they'll sing and they'll sing, 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 sing. And the more the Grinch thought of this who Christmas thing, the more Sihan thought, I must stop this whole thing. So Sihan gathered his people and from there they went to crush all the joy that the Israelites sent. Those nasty believers that love the barbecue feast. I'll stop every one of them, greatest to least. I'm sorry, I had to go there. <laughs> so Sihan gathered all his people together and went out against Israel in the wilderness. And he came to Jahaz and he fought against Israel. This is the sad part. Instead of just letting Christians pass through their merry way, they got to fight. And if you haven't had this in your life, it's coming. And when it happens, you come to Bible study and you pray about it. And we love on you. And you realize there's people that don't do that to you. There is a world in which people don't hate. The Edomites refuse them. The Amorites attack them. These are victories to announce to the world because Israelites going to kick both of their butts because God's on their side and the numbers don't matter. Right? Rahab's going to show this later on when she says, we've heard about you and the people are terrified, right? So what makes the world the most scared is when Christians are joyful and they just do what they do because they can't stop us because we're too happy. So the wolves come after the migrating people on their way to the promised land. God is at work in this too. He wants a particular path for his people. So sometimes those wolves are allowed to be wolfy and they stand for what they believe. Deuteronomy 2.30, But Sion, the king of Heshbon, would not let pass by him, for the Lord thy God hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate that he might deliver him into thy hand as he appeared in this day. So in Deuteronomy, we hear another, we see the side of Sahan where God's actually having 
influence where Sihon doesn't like these Israelites, but there's a hardening of hearts. And this happens with ungodly people. Not only do they not like godly people, but they get really irrational about it. Like it doesn't make sense why they get so mad. The attacking of Sihon against Israel makes no sense because they're in the high places and he attacks them. It's a horrible strategic move, if you think about it. So you have this situation where you just have irrational stuff. And irrational behavior by humans is usually spiritual warfare. It's usually stuff where it doesn't make sense why they're doing what they're doing. There's no rational reason behind it, but it's usually because there's so much chaos in their head because there's spiritual warfare going on. And they're victims because they're not firmly rooted in the word of God. So they make stupid decisions. And that's what Sihon does. Verse 24, then Israel defeats him with the edge of the sword and took possession of his land from the Arnon to the Jabbok as far as the people of Ammon for the border of the people of Ammon was fortified. There's no mention of anyone dying here. So either miraculously not one Israelite dies, that's a possibility, or it's not mentioned because death just isn't a big deal to God. And even with the new believers and the, the, the Christians in the book of Acts, a few of them die as martyrs, right? Like in God's army, some of us will die because the world hates us that much. And to think we're exempt from that is foolishness because all around the world today, people are dying because of the name of Christ. And we live in a pretty nice place where I don't have to worry about dying tomorrow in the name of Christ, but I may worry about that in a few years given the pace of current events, right? Because there is a point where that irrational behavior just gets like that. So there's no mention of an Israelite dying here. Another way to look at that is that that's not the important part of the story. That sometimes these battles are just fought and they're won by God. And if my life is forfeit, well, I've already given my life up. I should have died back with the snakes. But the fact that I'm even here fighting for the Lord, amen to that. Let's go. But my life is not something I'm going to pay much attention to, just like they don't pay much attention to it here. Verse 25. So Israel took all these cities. And Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites. They didn't raise them and destroy them like they did with the last group. In Heshbon and all its villages, for Heshbon was the city of Sion, king of the Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab and taken all his land from his hand as far as the Arnon. Therefore, those who speak in Proverbs say, come to Heshbon, let it be built, let the city of Sion be repaired. So the victories were impressive enough to write songs about them and Proverbs about them. Another reading on this is that the song is actually a form of taunting, kind of like the Israelites saying to whoever's left over, go ahead and bring it because we're that good at what we do. I think the taunting is a bit out of character for the book, but I've seen it in the commentaries. I want to share it with you. You may be blessed by the idea that they just joyfully taunted their enemies after they beat them. And then here we get our second mention of fire in the chapter. The last mention was the fiery serpents, but in verse 28, for fire went out from Heshbon, a flame from the city of Sihon, and it consumed Ar of Moab, the lord of the heights of Arnon. Woe to you, Moab, you have perished, O people of Chemosh. Well, that's interesting. So that's probably part of this proverb. So the fire is likely figurative because it is in a proverb form. It could also be literal. It depends on how you want to read that. Either way, the same message is clear. Uh, God is taking this land. Um, you should know Chemosh at the end of verse 29 is a Canaanite god of destruction. So it's basically saying that, that there's a destruction that destroyed the destroyer god and that there's kind of a symmetry or a poetry to that. Um, or if you're a VeggieTales fan, Chemosh was 
also named Moloch, which was the king of the Ninevites or the god of the Ninevites, which was a big fish god. How fish gods get associated with destruction, I have no idea. It's just archaeology and veggie tales. Okay? So, O people of Chemosh, here you go. The forces of Yahweh versus the forces of Chemosh, and Chemosh stands no chance. He's given his sons as fugitives, his daughters into captivity, to Sion, king of the Amorites. But we have shot at them. Heshbon has perished as far as Dibon, and then we laid waste as far as Nopah, which reaches to Medeba. Thus Israel dwelt in the land of the Amorites. Then Moses sent a spy out to Jazar, and they took its villages and drove out the Amorites who were there. Seemingly, after standing in their way, God easily gives these victories to the Israelites. They are just singing songs. People attack them. They defend themselves and just victories all over the place. Very similar thing happened right after Israel became a nation in 1948. A number of their surrounding countries attacked them. And was it the Seven Days War? Within seven days, not only did Israel defend itself, it actually took territory on all sides of the country. So a, a minority force just kicked butt. Um, and there's, you know, modern explanations for how that happened. But a lot of people just see that and go, that's just a miracle. Amazing that it still happens today. Don't attack Israel. It's a bad idea. It's just bad national policy. It's not a good thing to do. So Matthews 10, 12 says, if you go into a household, you greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. This is an interesting phrase for Christians that fits here. They went up to these people and said, can we pass? And these people attacked them. And then they said, okay, well, we have to answer that. And today we're kind of the same way. We're supposed to be cheery, nice, friendly, welcoming people. But when you have angry, nasty people there, you can just walk away and take your peace with you. They can have all their anger and upsetness and you can just have your joy. That's super tough to do when people are upset with you. When believers have a worn out welcome, our first shot thought should never be to hurt people. Our first shot or thought should be to just pass through in peace. But if they don't give us our peace, they should get ready for an earful. Because in today's world, that's kind of how we do those things. I don't know how to act that out. And this is kind of a point, I think, in maturity that some people do. Some people are more graceful than others. But it is also promised to us that we shouldn't prepare what we have to say before Caesar, that the Holy Spirit and God will give us the right words to say in these moments. Where should our focus be? On the cross and on Jesus. Our own relationship with Jesus should always be our focus. And if we're doing that right, then our relationship with other people falls into place. And whoever will not receive nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake the dust off from your feet. If you encounter people that block God's will, that's God's battle to fight. We just shake the dust off our feet. Say, okay, you can even have the dirt on my foot. I'm taking nothing from your house. And good luck with that, because when you're against God, it's not going to go so good. Fighting Israel is a bad national policy. Fighting against alive and living water type believers, it's a bad policy. It's going to get messy when those people leave and take their blessing with them. Verse 33, and they turned and they went up by way of Bashan. So Og, king of Bashan, went out against them, he and all his people, the battle at Idre. We don't see a lot more about that here, right? Og is an Amorite king. Uh, and the territory we're talking about in this verse is from the Golden Heights or Damascus. Basically, they take Lebanon uh, in that territory. Keep tabs. Israel has yet to initiate a battle. So the violent Israelites that people complain about in the Old Testament, we haven't seen them yet. They've always been defending themselves and responding 
other people that attack them. So God hand, God's hand protects them. God's hand protects Christians today too. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another city. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues, and you will persecute them from city to city. It doesn't matter to a believer if they scourge us and kill us. I know that's depressing. Or if we just have victory and triumph, because it's not our life to live. It's God's. And we can just keep singing our songs, and the Grinch can keep being angry until the Lord comes and sets that stuff straight. Then the Lord said to Moses, don't fear them. I've delivered him into your hand. By the way, that's both past, present, and future tense. I've delivered them into your hand. I have already done it. I am doing it, and I will do it. Stop here and absorb that thought. Then the Lord said to Moses, do not fear him, for I have delivered him into your hand. This is kind of foreshadowing of Joshua, be strong and courageous. It's unapologetic belief and faith. And that unapologetic Christianity shines. It's when people fear that they compromise and God spits that crap out. He want, it actually, it says he vomits them out. It's a, very, it's a violent projectile that comes out. God doesn't want those people. We should know that. Do not fear him, for I have delivered him to a hand. When we fear things, it's because we believe God has not done the deliverance. Fear is actually doubt in God, and it's assault against God. If we fear those things, we become horrible. This is, I think, the guts of Martin Luther King Jr.'s passive resistance philosophy. We're just going to go into that diner and try to order a meal and be joyful and peaceful and happy. And we're going to let the world rage against us when we do it. And in doing that, we actually have great victory because the spirit that's in us can be seen and it can shine when we revolt against the world and we don't do what they're doing. Try going out for drinks with the people at work and just order a soda. Just don't do what they're doing and see how they, they won't let it go. They'll react to it. We've had interesting things said to us, right? I almost got kicked out of a thing because I, they wouldn't, if you don't listen to Led Zeppelin and drink beer with me, then I don't trust you. And I'm like, okay, that's your problem. Coke, please. I don't know. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. Our job is not to fear. I just think that's such a relevant thing right now. That's our job. Don't look at the snakes. Look at the, look at the pole with all his people. I, I will deliver him into your hand with all his people and his land, and you shall do to him as you did to Sion, the king of the Amorites who dwelt in Heshbon. If you want to know if God's going to continue to sustain you, just look backwards. He's already done it so many times with so many Christians. And the spirit that's in you is the same spirit that's in Peter and in Paul and in Martha and Mary. Well, Mary, maybe Mary, not Martha. <laughs> the same spirit that was in them is in you. He's given you all the strength you need to be one of those kinds of people in history. So they defeated him and his sons and all his people until there was no survivor left and they took possession of the land. These are foundational wills, wins in Israeli history. It's a hinge point in the Bible. You've got this nation moving forward now that we haven't seen before. So let's sum it all up. Stop complaining. Especially don't complain about God's cooking. Just look at him when there's snakes all around at your ankles wanting to bite you. You keep... you. Resist everything in your flesh and look at God. Trust him that he's going to win because he's done it again and again and again. And then watch the victories start to happen. Or if you're one of the unlucky Israelites that maybe and probably died in some of these battles, 
Amen to that. You helped God's plan go, go forward even as a martyr. And there's nothing this world has to offer. A job, a degree, a bus. There's nothing this world has to offer you that's better than God. And God will provide for you. And that's the problem when you have to make those choices and those battles. Do I pick this or do I pick that? And you have these difficult choices to make. And those are the times when that's the toughest thing to do. Pick God. He'll bless you for it. It might not feel like it. You might be going through the wilderness like this for a while. Like, how? what am I doing here and how am I doing it? But keep your eyes on Jesus and you'll find that he blesses your life in so many ways if you just follow him in the face of what the world wants you to worry about. That said, if a business wants you to wear a mask, it's their house, honor their rules. Wear the mask, right? Be peaceful, right? We'll go through your territory. We won't touch your wells. We won't, we won't get off the king's highway. We'll walk the straight and narrow. We'll follow your rules. We just want to walk through in peace. That's our job is to come at people with peace and love and grace. And then when the battles come, try to keep your eyes on the cross and come back to fellow believers. And that's where we talk about it. Watch the victories happen. But I don't know if this is a cheerful, hopeful, awesome chapter or if this is a highly like convicting chapter. Because at the same time you're dealing with these problems, you're dealing with these victories too. But the victories don't come without turmoil and strife. And the victories come out of the turmoil and strife because you can't have a victory if you've never had a battle. And that's kind of the joyful part about this. So um, I'm saying all this. Now you guys can all say, I told you so, as I get more involved with Mache and the state government and these kinds of things. Oh my gosh, there's going to be tons of battles up in front of me. And and us, really, because you get to hear about it all every week. Um, but the battles are going to be there. There are people that hate the mission of homeschooling in the state of Minnesota, and they'll do everything they can do to shut it down. And I'm just going to sing songs and greet them and say hello, and they'll think I'm nuts. But we'll keep having victory after victory, and when we do that. Or we won't. doesn't matter, because I'm just going to follow the Lord, and I pick the Lord over anything this world wants to put in front of me. Amen? And I pray the same for you. Dear Lord and King, I just summarized, so I won't do it again in the prayer. Here's what I'm praying for, Lord. I'm praying that for every person in this room, anyone who's listening to this recording, Lord, that they stop for a moment and they just absorb what you said to Moses. Don't fear. I've already delivered them into your hand. Lord, you've given all the victory and you've won all that needs to be won. When Satan did everything he could do, he whipped you and scourged you and beat you and marched you through the streets and mocked you and humiliated you and threatened you and brought you before the, the Pontius Pilate and demanded that you retract what you said and retract your belief and your knowledge. And Lord, and you just said, no thanks. Do what you got to do. And they did. And Lord, they hung you on a cross and they killed you. And Lord, today we look at that as our banner that is set on high. Help it to never become an idol. It's not a weak thing or a passive thing or something to be forgot about. But Lord, help us look to the cross as, as, as a banner, a symbol that you've already delivered. Everything this world can possibly throw at us, you've already beat it, even unto death. And Lord, we look for your resurrection in your life in everything we do. Lord, even the small battles. Lord, we live lives that are so small, but in you, in you, Lord, everything's about our soul and our spirit. Every decision matters. Every choice we make matters. And Lord, help us to make choices that make no sense to us, 
but we know in the spirit that what you want us to do. Lord, give us wisdom, give us peace, help us to temper one another and encourage one another and fan the flames of faith as we burn brightly before the world. Uh, nothing short of that, Lord. That's what we want. That's what we ask for. I pray that you pray that you do great things this week. Heal those that have need of healing. Encourage those who have need of encouragement and give boldness and courage to those of us who need it. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.